We're glad to see you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have one, I, we would love to bless you with one on either of our campuses. Uh, while you're turning to Romans chapter 6, I want to welcome those that are joining us on, the, our, on our Edgewood campus as well as those that are joining us online. Uh, if you're a, a new uh, guest with us this morning, hey, we are so glad that you're hanging out with us and taking the time to be with us this morning. Pray that you are encouraged and blessed. Uh, as we uh, not only have sung together, but as we study God's Word together. Um, But in Romans uh, chapter 6, as we're going to pick up here in a few moments, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, who was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts uh, chapter 7, is writing to this group of people in Rome whom he longs to see but has never met. Um, And he wants them to know that he's not ashamed of the power of the gospel that's been working his life. And he also wants them to understand that uh, we... Uh, have not only a fallen sin nature, but that we are really in our flesh condemned by God. He, he makes a case in Romans chapter 3 that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, he tells us in, in chapter 3 verse 10 that there's not one righteous, not even one. Um, but then he kind of builds on that thought um, as he talks to not only the Gentile group and also to the Jews. He builds on and he wants you and I to realize that um, all of us... Um, not only are, are sinners, but that our trespasses have been made known through the law in Romans chapter 5. Basically, he just says uh, where, where we have seen that the trespass increase, which is our reality of our sin. He makes this case in Romans chapter 5 that grace has abounded. He just helps us realize that even though we are dead in our trespasses or sin, even though we're sinners, that grace abounds. And that's what he, he kind of helps us realize in Romans chapter 5. Matter of fact, We'll just read a little bit of ourselves. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, um, this is what he says. He says, Now the law came, uh, which the law would have been the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law. He says, It came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. For instance, he says, Look, you didn't realize you were breaking the law until you saw that the law was there. When you got the sheriff in town and he rolled out the law, he goes, You began to realize that you were breaking all these laws. He goes, and when you realize that you were a sinner and you broke the law, the moral code, the spiritual code, the, the civil code, the ceremonial code, when you broke all these laws, these rituals, he goes, you also realize that God's grace abounded even more. For instance, even though you were sinners, we could know that God would demonstrate his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So yes, you're a sinner, but grace abounds in our sin, which is really good news. Amen. It kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 8, this famous passage that you've probably heard at, at probably in funerals a lot of times. But Paul is just helping us see the depths that God has gone to to secure us in a relationship to him. In Romans chapter 8, we'll start in verse 35 and following. It just says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 36, he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, look, life hasn't been easy. Um, He tells us clearly that he has uh, gone through nakedness and peril and sword. It has been very difficult for him. But then he continues this thought in verse 37. No, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What he's basically saying is, is that though we're sinners, we can be secure in God's grace. That's what Paul is trying to help the audience in Rome understand. Yes, you're sinners. Yes, no one's righteous. Yes, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of ungodliness. But he goes, if you are secure in Christ, you have a foundation in Christ, you've put your hope in Christ, he goes, God's grace abounds. And that's really good news. But then he, he asks a question as he enters Romans chapter 6. He's built the case all the way up to Romans chapter 6. But look what he asks in Romans 6, this question in verse 1, which is a very legitimate question. Shall, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He uses an active tense verb here when he says continue, meaning, okay, if God has forgiven us and grace abounds, even though we're sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, hey, do we continue to sin habitually, is what he's asking, so that God's grace would increase? For instance, maybe when you were young, you thought, man, God loves me and he's forgiven me. And because he loves me and has forgiven me, um, I can kind of continue to live a life of rebellion. And, and I know that in his nature, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, but he's also all-forgiving. And because he's all-forgiving and all-powerful, that I could kind of do this thing in the back of my mind, knowing that he's a forgiving God, I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to ask him forgiveness in which in his character, he'll grant forgiveness. Anybody ever done that? Okay, hold on. Maybe y'all aren't understanding, okay? When I was immature in my walk with Christ, I can literally think back to moments where I was living in impurity or when I was uh, not honoring the Lord in things that I said or did or things that were appealing to me, attractive to my eye, um, attractive to my flesh. And I can remember partaking in such instances and thinking in the back of my mind, God, I know that this is not only wrong, but I can already feel the guilt and the shame and the denial and the lies that, that this is going to bring on. But God, I'm going to do it anyway because it gratifies my desires and my flesh. And I'm going to ask you for forgiveness later. Anybody ever done that? Okay, if you haven't done that, um, then hey, bless your heart. I've done that. I have I've lived there. Listen, I want to just real quickly help you understand that if you, if you live in that pattern, then it is either a mark of your immaturity as a believer and a follower of Christ, or it's a mark of you not knowing Jesus fully. It's one of the two. Um, we cannot claim to know Jesus and continue to live in a habitual lifestyle of sin. Now, I'm not saying that you won't sin again. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I'll make a case for that here in a second. But Paul asks this question, hey, what shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And then he answers his own question in verse 2, which you always love when an author does that. And he says, by no means. I think there's an emphasis here. I don't think he's going, hey, by no means, guys. You shouldn't do that. I think he's going, by no means. And he asks then, how can we, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What Paul is saying, he goes, listen, if we have claimed that we have a new life in Christ, then he goes, how do we continue to gratify the desires of our flesh? Now, I don't think Paul is saying that you and I are sinless. Matter of fact, I think he gives you a very great example of that in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Romans 7, verse 18, he just says, I know there's nothing good that lives in me that is in my flesh apart from Christ Jesus. He goes on to explain, I know that there are things that I ought not to do and I find myself doing. The very things I ought to do, I find myself not doing. He gives you that there's this tension, this war being waged and in his flesh. There are things that, that we know we ought to do and we don't do. That happens. 
But what he is answering here is saying, look, there's got to be a point and when, and when we walk in Christ that we don't continue to give in to the futility of our thinking, that we don't continue to give in to our sinful flesh time and time again habitually. There's a time where we grow up in our salvation. That's a mark of maturity for a believer. We don't continue to sin uh, that grace would increase is what he's saying. William Barclay says it this way. He says, How despicable it would be for a son or a daughter to consider himself or herself free to sin because he, uh, he or she knew that a father or mother would forgive. Because that would be foolish for a child to continue to go against their, their parents' will simply because they believed the parent loved them so much they would forgive them every time. Because that's not the mark of maturity. Let me kind of give it to you this way. Um, Let's just say, hypothetically, it's a Monday morning. You're taking your kid or your grandkid to school. And uh, as you go to school, you decide that you're going to, to go through a school zone and you're going about 10 miles an hour over. You don't really realize, you're not cognizant of this fact, but you're, you're in a rush because you're, you're a little bit behind the clock. And then not only that, you also have just taken a business call. Uh, somebody at work needed you. And so you are riding through a school zone. You've got a cell phone up your ear and you're going a little bit fast. And all of a sudden, you recognize that in your rearview mirror are lights. They're red, white, and blue. And then they've gotten your attention with their siren. And so you pull over. And right there in that, in that moment, you go, oh, no. You know, you're toast. Uh, you, not only are you toast because you're driving through the school zone a little bit fast, but you've got a, you got a cell phone up to your ear. In which, as you pull over, you see the officer exit from their vehicle and he comes up to you and he says, hey, um, hey just real quickly, just want to ask, hey, why, why are you in a hurry? Which you explain, um, well, I'm trying to get the kids to school. It never really goes well for us on a Monday morning. And, and listen, it was just, I'm just kind of absent-minded and, and I, I know I'm wrong. And, I, and he goes, okay, great. Can I ask you another question? He asks, why do you have a cell phone up here? Well, listen, it's a really important business call. I had to take it. I know that, I know I shouldn't. And I know it's wrong. He goes, okay, hey, thanks for your explanation. He goes, uh, let me have your license. I'm going to go run your insurance and license, and I'll be back with you in a few moments. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're, if you're like me, um, that's kind of the moment where things start playing in your mind. And, and number one, you're like, oh, I'm busted. This is not the way I wanted to start a Monday. And then number three, the, the thing that always goes for me, like just is aren't school zones double? And you go, man, how much is this going to cost me? Like, I don't, I mean, yes, I'm speeding, then a cell phone, and then double all these offenses. And I don't know about you, but like, you, you ever ding your car in Walmart and you go, gosh, how much is this going to cost me? Ever do that? That's what I'm thinking in my mind. My mind naturally shoots to, man, what is this going to cost me? And then as I'm sitting there, as he's running license registration, I'm kind of frustrated with myself. My kids are more late. And then you've got this other thing, this other factor. It's this small town factor that as, as you're sitting in your car, your, your friends are waving by and they're like, they're like, they're, they're waving at you. And you're kind of like trying not to notice them. You've already got a text or two going, hey, you like busted, you know, and you're having to explain all this. So you've got all these mixture of emotions running in your mind. You're caught, you're busted. You're going to pay a serious offense. It's going to cost your wallet. And not only that, it's costing now your pride. 
when all at once you see the officer exit the vehicle, you're kind of bracing yourself. You're thinking, maybe I can talk my way out of it. Maybe I could put my mask on. We could do the COVID card, you know, maybe make it a little awkward. Maybe they'll let us off. And when he says, hey, listen, um, just want you to know, not only are, are you wrong on two accounts, um, he goes, I just want to share with you that it's my birthday today. And I made up my mind last night that unless there was a really egregious offense and somebody was a jerk to me, I wasn't going to write them a ticket. And so he goes, today is your day in which you are off the hook. And when all at once you're like, oh, praise the Lord. I mean, don't get me wrong, you still have to kind of make your case among town to a handful of people. But all in all, you're like, I'm off the hook. The, the offense has been overlooked in which you go, that's great. Now let me ask you a question. On Tuesday, when, when the officer's sitting over there in the same spot he was the day before, are you going to go through 10 miles over with a cell phone up to your ear? No, you're not. Why? Because you go, I'm not going to test his grace. I'm not going to continue in this pattern over and over and over again expecting that he's going to give me what he gave me initially. Friends, that's what Paul is saying. He goes, listen, do you continue to sin that grace would increase? And then he goes, by no means. We don't continue to live in sin so that grace would abound. That's the point. And then he goes further and he, he gives you some theological implications here. Theological implications that when you first look at them, you can kind of overlook. But it, what I want you to see is what he says in verse 3. He says, what does he say? Here he says, Okay. <laughs> He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He goes on in verse 4 and he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He goes, don't you realize that when, when you identified with Christ, when you sought his forgiveness, on the basis of your sin, that you identified with him in a new way, a new nature? Don't you realize that you said, Lord, you've, you've forgiven me, and because of that forgiveness, you now identified with him in death, which means that as we take part in baptism, which is just a handful of weeks away on the 31st, as we celebrate new life in Christ, do you notice that when we do baptism, it's by immersion? Do you know why it's by immersion? It's because as believers in Christ, when we put a foundational hope in Jesus, we are identifying that our old life has been buried and then it's raised to a new life, that we walk in the newness of Christ. It's what Paul says to, to the church of Thessalonica when he simply says that we are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. It's what he means here, and I'll show it to you uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 22 and 24. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. He talks about living in a, a mark of maturity. He talks about not being tossed to and fro. And then he says this, and he says, and you shouldn't be like the Gentiles who in the futility of their thinking do foolish things. He goes, don't be like that. He goes on and he just says, that's not the way that you've learned Christ. That's what he tells the church in Ephesus. That's not what, that's not what you've learned in Christ. And he says, as you've learned Christ, you learned, and then he says in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
It's the way that Paul writes to the church of Colossae when he says you should be clothed in Christ, chapter 3. Um, it's when he tells us that we should have our minds fixed on things above. It's what the writer of Hebrews means when we trust in our, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, the, you see all these different analogies. Basically what he's saying is he goes, when you identify with Christ, he goes, you don't continue to live in the futility of your thinking. You don't continue to gratify the desires of your old nature. Meaning you don't do what you used to do. You change. You, you're renewed. You're transformed. That's what he's going to say in Romans chapter 12. That we are no longer conformed to the patterns of the world, but we're transformed. That our minds are renewed. You see the continual picture in the New Testament? It's that we would grow up. How do you know that someone is truly saved? How do you know that they're truly different? That they have the mark of Christ in their life? They grow up. They're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every crafty and cunning, deceitful scheme. They no longer walk in the futility of their thinking. They're no longer crawling along like infants, but they're growing up. Friends, that's the mark of maturity, that you realize I know Christ because Christ is transforming my heart and my mind. I'm not the same that I was yesterday or let alone a year or two ago, but I'm growing up into him who is the head over all things, Christ. You see the picture here? You've died to your sin. You're walking a new life with Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Pay attention. You might even write this down. If not, you'll see in the sermon notes tomorrow or maybe we'll stick it online. Here's, here's what I just would help you understand. That before Christ, you were dead in sin. You were dead. You were estranged, alienated. But now as a follower of Christ, you are to be dead to sin. So before Christ, you were dead in sin. As a follower of Christ, now you are to be dead to sin. So one has a consequence that means to separate you from the love of God. One which does not have a consequence, but grows you up as a mark of believer. So we should be dead to our sin. Verse 5, he goes on, he says, For if we have been united with him, meaning Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So he says, if you've identified with him in death, meaning you crucified the old nature, he goes, now walk in a new relationship to him. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 4 and 6 uh, just says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. And you've been raised up with him and seated. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of the forgiveness and the remission of sin, because of the just penalty paid by Jesus Christ, we can have an inheritance with him in the eternal places. Yes, that's why Peter says that we don't have an inheritance spoils to phase away, but it's kept in heaven for us. It's why we have a citizenship in heaven. Yes, that's what Paul is addressing here. Which then he goes on in verse 6 and he says this, And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's what he says. This is what he means. In the law, which was the Ten Commandments and many other rituals uh, produced by the Jews, civil, ceremonial, spiritual, these different laws, he goes... When you see this, um, he goes, you need to realize that our old self was crucified with him 
that we might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to, to sin. Here's what he's saying. He goes, look, in the law, he goes, we realized that God was, was trying to help us see the old man. That's why Paul writes to his buddy Timothy, and he says in chapter 1 of the first book of Timothy, he says, hey, we know the law is useful if one uses it properly. What's the point of the law? The law helps you realize that the old man is dead, that you are condemned in your sin, that you'll never measure up, you'll never keep all the laws. You, you and I have a problem, and the problem is revealed in God's word. That's what the prophets were telling the people of Israel about. You're dead, you're, you're, you're in trouble. But what's interesting is, is that while the law tries to reform the old man, tries to make the old man correct some things, the old man could never get it corrected, could you? Even though you know the law, all it's done is made you more aware that, man, I mess up all the time. Which is why then Jesus comes. And what does Jesus do? Jesus puts to death everything that he's revealed in the law. He's the one who crucifies the old man. That's what Paul means when he writes to the church of Galatia in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And he just goes on. He says, um, but Christ who lives in me, uh, he goes, well, hold on, let me, let's, let me think about this. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But this life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's not right. I'll get that soon. I had it earlier. Yeah, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I now live by the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The point, what he's saying is, he goes, I have crucified the old man. That's what Christ does for us. The old man is dead. There's a point where as believers in Christ, he changes our thoughts. He changes our actions. He changes our language, our words. There's a point where when we're circling up with our buddies at work, we don't talk the way our buddies at work talked. I call that the locker room language. What happens in locker rooms oftentimes isn't pure. There's a time where you stand apart from everyone else. There's a time where you don't look the way everyone else looks. You don't do what's normative anymore because you've been set apart. You've crucified the old flesh. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we should do. He really is just circling up on this fact that you don't continue to sin, that grace would increase. Y'all got that? Something changes in us. Friends, that's the end of the message. 17 minutes early. You got to ask yourself, what is still alive in me that God desires to crucify? What is still producing in me that looks more like the world than it does like Christ? Is it an insatiable appetite for pleasure or money or greed or comfort? That's mine. I, I just I want unruly sheep to stop. I just want comfort in my life. I just want to put my phone down and not be bothered. I just think, man, wouldn't it be nice if I have all the attributes of the future kingdom now? Wouldn't it be nice if, if, if I could just have heaven on earth? That's not what it is, is it? He goes, you keep pressing on. Crucify the desires of your flesh. 
live in a day and age where there's peril or nakedness or famine and sword, knowing that Christ has paid for all of it. Which just begs the question, y'all, y'all have like 12 minutes, can I show y'all something really foundational? Yeah, okay. If you don't have 12 minutes, hey, you're dismissed, okay? <laughs> if you have 12 minutes, I want you to see something. Let's circle back to verse 5 real quick. Let's look at it. He says, For if we have been united with him in his death, meaning Jesus, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? Now, the reason I want to show you this is because there's a couple of different schools of thought that, that are kind of being emphasized in our circles. Um, and one school of thought is, is kind of taking Philippians 2. Uh, namely, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, it's taking Philippians 2, in which you see this passage about us being like Christ. Um, he just says, you know, we should have the same attitude of Christ, consider others better than ourselves, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit. You probably have heard that before. But then he gets to the point in verse 5 where he says, and have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have a mind of, of Christ. And then he says this in verse 6, who thought he was, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, you should make yourself a note. If you got your Bibles, you can go back and and, and look at this. And the reason why is because when Jesus says, um, or when Paul says about Jesus, that that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the question is, is, why did he empty himself, and what did he empty himself of? Now, If you believe Paul is teaching here a resurrection like his, meaning Jesus, then you're taking the idea of the word in the Greek, emptied himself, which is the word of kenosis, that's the word in the Greek, and you're making that in some ways about yourself, and you're in some ways even saying, I'll identify with Christ in a resurrection like his. What that means is there's two schools of thought. There is one school of thought that would say, Jesus is the God-man, and, and he takes on this idea of what's called the hypostatic union. Everybody say hypostatic union. Hypostatic. You're like, I can't, I don't even know what that is. Okay, I'm going to tell you what it is. The hypostatic union is that you would believe that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. That's a, that is a traditional and an orthodox Christian belief. There is another school of thought that is becoming more pervasive in our culture that's called the kenosis theory, that Jesus emptied himself. And when he emptied himself, what they're saying is he emptied himself of divinity. So Jesus came and he was 100% God, 100% man, but then he set aside his divinity so that he could be like a man. And they're, take, they're saying that's the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory is saying that because Jesus emptied himself of all of, of his divinity and he took on the form of a servant, like, like we would say that, that in many ways, you and I too could be like Jesus. Now, the reason that's a challenge is because if you look at a feed, or, or Philippians 2, he just simply says, when you, when you look at that, he says he emptied himself of what? He emptied himself 
of divinity? No, I don't think so. He says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here's what I want you to realize. The hypostatic union, which is the orthodox thought of the scriptures, of the Nicene Creed, of the early church creeds, and of our church today, that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, means that he didn't empty himself of divinity. Matter of fact, it says that he took on the form of a servant. So what I want you to realize is it's not a subtraction of deity, it's an addition of humanity. Let me explain that one more time. It's not a subtraction of Jesus' deity, it's an addition of humanity. So there's no subtraction here. It's not that Jesus was God and then he subtracted his deity out of it to make a man. It's that he was God and he added to his character humanity so that he could be like us, identify with us. But listen, be careful. He didn't empty himself of divinity so that you could be like him. Because if he empties himself of divinity, then the common teaching that could be pervasive in our culture is, is that you can do what Jesus did. That you too could attain a sinless life and that you too could do all the miraculous signs and the wonders that Jesus did. That's why the ketosis theory is so dangerous. Let me show you real quickly just who Jesus is. And when he says you can have a resurrection like his, he's not saying that you too can have resurrection power on earth. He's not saying that the kingdom of God is here today, that you can live in that. He's saying that, listen, that you can identify with him in a death, burial, and resurrection. There's a future place and a kingdom seated for you, uh, and a place seated in the kingdom for you. But he's not saying, hey, the kingdom is here now, so you should enjoy all the benefits of Jesus. Because after all, Jesus emptied himself of divinity, and you too can be like Jesus, because he wasn't divine. He was just powered through the Holy Spirit and through his Father. Two totally different schools of thought. One denies Jesus' divinity, subtracts it. The other one adds Jesus' humanity to identify with us. Let me just show you what the hypostatic union is in scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how he used to speak. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The writer of Hebrews just says, listen, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. He is the one whom the prophets spoke of, but he is now the word of God. He is the one who's created everything and he is the exact replica. He is the radiance of our Father. He's the one who died for sins so that we could have a new life in Christ. He's the one who gives purity, and his name is more excellent than any other name. Make sense? You're like, I don't know. Here's what, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, and here's the traditional thought, is that Jesus had two natures. He is both God, and he is both man. He is fully God, fully man. Not 100% God and 90% man, and not 100% man and zero God. He is always 100% God and 100% man and never empties himself of either of those things. Always both. But yet each nature remains distinct. 
but Christ is only one person. So did Jesus claim to be divine? Yes. Let me show you all the ways he did. I'll put them for you up here on the screen. In John chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, um, it just says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who made him known? Jesus did. So Jesus is God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus actually says this of himself in a classic passage. Um, he says, I and the Father are one. What does Jesus claim here? Deity. He doesn't claim to set aside deity here. He says, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus actually says this of himself. Before Abraham was, I am. We'll put it for you up on the screen. Verse 58, Jesus just said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. How could he be before Abraham? Because he was God. John really gives us a summation of this. The apostle in John chapter 1, look at verse 1. He just says, In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. How long has Jesus been? Forever. Before anything was ever created, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. He's the exact replica of the Father. But look at verse 14. John will go on to say this, And the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as a, uh, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me put it for you in a way, if you're still following along and tracking, let me put it for a way that you could understand. Jesus has always been God, but He has not always been a human. Jesus has always been God. He was always with God, always was God, but there was a point where he added humanity to himself. And when he did that, he emptied himself of what? Not his divinity, but his ability to come close and proximate to us. He left the heavenly realms. Could you imagine what it looks like, Jesus, to subject himself to the Father, to say, I'll go and live among these peons? these sinners so that I could identify with them in weakness, so that I could understand what it is that they are living in, but yet he was 100% God, 100% man, so that you and I could come to know God and that we could identify in a resurrection like his. What does that mean? That we could identify in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our old flesh, crucify its nature and its desires so that we could walk in Christ and namely with the power of the Holy Spirit we could live in purity in a world that is, is full of filth. We could be consecrated and set apart. That's what he means. So real quickly, let me just show you all the ways that Jesus had God-like attributes. Where you can see clearly in Scripture, he didn't set aside divinity. He was 100% God. Here it is. Jesus was the creator of everything. Colossians 1. Things that you see and don't see. He is the creator of all of it. Um, you could add this one. I didn't put it on here, but Colossians 2, verse 9, would just show you that he is the, the imprint, the, the nature of God. He knows everything. Matthew chapter 16, Luke chapter 11, John chapter 4. Jesus, I'll show you this passage in a second as we close, in Luke chapter 11, knew that his friend Lazarus was dead and he wasn't even the same, or going to die and he wasn't in the same place as him. Jesus, how would Jesus know that if he emptied himself of divinity? He couldn't. That's why we know Jesus didn't, because he knew everything. You see that even in his ministry. Jesus has all power. Jesus never set aside his power, although he didn't tap into it as divine in many cases. 
He himself is light and life. John chapter 1, verse 4, 14, verse 6, 8, 58. He had authority over everything. Matthew 28, Revelation 1. In multiple other places where you see that Jesus had authority and never emptied himself of such authority. You also see that he was always was and, and always will be the one who exists. John 1, John 8, 58. See, Jesus and God are one. Do you see this? But let me show you also the ways that he put on and added humanity to himself. Jesus was born of a baby from a human mother. He, very important, was not born of flesh, but of spirit. So he identifies with us in humanity, but he was spirit, not flesh. If he was conceived of flesh, then guess what? He gets the same sin problem that Adam and Eve had. So we're thankful he didn't because he could die in our place. Uh, Jesus became weary in John chapter 4. You see that. Jesus was tempted. You have a great account of that in Matthew chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, uh, verse 15, even says that he was tempted just as we are, yet he was without sin. There's the difference. We also see that Jesus had physical attributes where he was thirsty and he was hungry. John chapter 19, Matthew chapter 4. We saw that he uh, had human emotions such as marvel in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. And he had sorrow, which you see he wept for his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. He lived on earth just as we did. You see all of these things? Now you might ask the question, okay, but why are you even going into all of this? And here's why. If you and I believe the kenosis theory that Jesus dies so that we can have a resurrection like his, what Paul's writing in Romans chapter 6 verse 5, then it means that you and I can set aside sin and that we can have all the power that God did. Because people of the kenosis theory would say this, well, Jesus didn't have the power to do anything because he emptied himself, subtracted his divinity, so Jesus couldn't heal anybody. Jesus couldn't have multiplied food to the 5,000. Jesus couldn't have, uh, have, have done any of those things because he emptied himself of all of it. That is a very, very, very bad hermeneutic, which means you take and you warp the word of God. And when you do that, you reduce Jesus to a mere man, which means if Jesus is a mere man, you too can be just like him. You can have resurrecting power. You can pour, perform signs and wonders and miraculous things. Matter of fact, if you're living in that thought process, it's not only natural, it's to be expected. It's a, it's a coercion of the text. And the reason I share that with you is that that's not what Paul means. A better idea of that is what you see exchanged in John chapter 11. Now, I'm going to set it up for you, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll close, okay? In John chapter 11, Jesus is away in Bethany. Mary and Martha uh, are, are friends of Jesus. Uh, you've seen a couple of encounters with them. But Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, is sick and about to die, in which Mary and Martha know that if Jesus was near, that he could prevent such a death because Jesus had that power. And the challenge was is that Jesus, even in his foreknowledge and in his divinity, he knew what was going on, and he chose not to go heal Lazarus. And so as a result of Lazarus' sickness, Lazarus dies. Not only does Lazarus die, but Mary and Martha are now frustrated because they know that if Jesus would have done something about it and he had the power to do it, it wouldn't have happened. Which then Jesus eventually arrives on scene, Mary and Martha meet him, and Martha uh, has an exchange with Jesus, and, and you see this kind of happen and transpire in John chapter 11, verse 23. And Jesus says to, to Martha, hey, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on, key phrase, the last, what? On the last day. What is her expectation? She's saying, I know that Lazarus will rise again on the last day. What she's saying is an orthodox thought. I know that Lazarus will one day live in the kingdom of God with you. He'll be resurrected on the last day. He'll have a new glorified body. He'll enjoy the kingdom in which is to come, the fulfillment of all that God sets up, his reign and his supremacy. Lazarus indeed will enjoy all the benefits of that. She knows that. She believes that orthodox thought. Look what happens. And then Jesus said to her, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, or and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's what he says. He goes, here's the Orthodox Christianity. You're a sinner, you're dead in your flesh. You believe in the supremacy of Christ. You believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Even though you die physically, you can live forever spiritually. You agree with that? If you're still tracking, yes. That's what it looks like. He says, do you believe this? And then she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. In this exchange... Mary and Martha do not take its belief that because of Jesus, that Lazarus could have resurrecting power right then, or that they too, for that matter. Matter of fact, you don't even see Mary and Martha try to take on the resurrection of the dead themselves, do you? You don't see them go and say, hey, Lazarus, come forth out of the grave. And you know why? It's because they knew that they were limited in their flesh and they knew that the one they had to look to was the one who had all power, the one who identified in their flesh like them, yet he was perfectly 100% God and man. That was namely Jesus. Now you might ask the question, okay, Brandon, well, like I'm not tracking or, or, or I'm tracking a little bit, I'm trying to follow you. Listen, can I explain to you? I understand it's confusing. But real quickly, let me just help you see this one thing and then we'll close. The reason this is important is because if you believe that Jesus emptied himself of divinity, there are pastors who are prominent on TV and in our culture who are encouraging you to be like him. And they are encouraging you to go after supernatural signs and wonders. That if you have enough faith, that you will be free from the infirmities of this world that you'll be free of poverty, that you'll be free of, of, um, of sickness, that you'll be free of any of these challenges because you can have a resurrection like his. And if you have resurrecting power on earth, then why in the world would you want to wait for the future kingdom if you can have your kingdom now? And I want you to realize that when you listen to people, whether it be on the radio or TV, you and I have to do what Paul encouraged the church of Thessalonica to do, and that is to test and approve all things. Because not everyone means the same thing. And so when you sing a song and it's talking about resurrecting power, what do they mean? If they're talking about you have resurrecting power, then here's what they're saying. You can identify with Christ in a resurrection like his, meaning you can go heal people now. 
that you can go bring life where there's death, that you have the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders. And can I just tell you, there's never been a more prominent day and age in the church that people were encouraging others to go after signs, miracles, and wonders. That our gospel, oftentimes, that's being preached throughout the world, not our gospel, their gospel is being preached, and it is simply encouraging you to identify in a resurrection like his, meaning that you should perform all the great signs and the wonders that you would see um, in the New Testament as normative things here. And if you're not doing that, you either are too sinful or you lack faith. Whereas a better picture of what I think Paul is saying is that you and I are dead to our, our flesh. We live in the spirit of God and we keep our eyes fixed on a heavenly kingdom. Though it's not our reality now, it will one day be. And until then, we fix our eyes, we run our race with perseverance, we realize that we can take the words of Jesus when he says, take heart, for I've overcome the world, to mean that in this life we will have tribulations. Isn't that what he says? That we will have hardship, that we will have disease, that we will have sin in our at times in our flesh, but listen, we hold on. We stay the course. Why? Because one day, Revelation 19 tells us, Revelation 20 tells us, the old order of things will pass away and behold, the new things will come. We stay fixed with our eyes on Christ. We continue to run our race with perseverance. And we do not make this earth our kingdom. Nor do we say, I can be like Jesus. Sinless and powerful. But we can identify in his death by crucifying our flesh and walking in the spirit. Two totally different things. Some of you are like, I don't understand it. That's okay. But you need to learn to understand it because not everything that is being put out on TV and, and even in, in our sectors of what we listen to mean the same thing. And we just have to be ready. We have to be vigilant. We have to stay awake. We have to be on our post like watchmen, ready. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I realize that today is a very challenging text to follow. Father, I pray that you would plant a seed in our hearts and that with, with clarity and with some diligence, we would go back and we would watch closely, that we would listen closely and that we would, we would seek to honor you in all things. I pray that you would help us to test and approve. I, I pray that you would help us to not reduce your son to a mere mortal who emptied himself of divinity, but Lord, that we would see a man who emptied himself by becoming a servant, that he willingly left heaven to put on humanity to identify with us so that he would be a, a lamb led to the slaughter. Two totally different things. God, give us clarity. May a seed take root in our heart to where we grow up into mature manhood, to the full stature of Christ. I pray that we would not be easily deceived, tossed to and fro by cunning and crafty men who are attributed to in the New Testament as dice playing cheaters. There are people who want to pull the wool over our eyes. I pray that we would stay awake, that we would be vigilant, that we would test and approve all things, and that we would know that there is a future kingdom being set up and that one day we will inherit it because we live for you now in the present age. We love you. We thank you. And as we leave out of this place, I pray 
that we would know that the only power we have is because Christ lives in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.